What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. It is Thursday, November 29th, and I'm here with Schwan Humes. How are you doing there, sir? Oh, you know me? Good as always. Just staying busy. I don't ever get any rest, man. I'm getting, I think, I, I think I caught it from you. Now I'm always busy. Can't get no rest. <laughs> Got 15 jobs. Don't like any of them. <laughs> Hey man, you gotta do what you gotta do nowadays. It's, it's, it's too much work out here in these streets. Yeah, well, I mean, you're right, dude. You got some people talking about, man. I'm, try- I'm trying to grind. I'm like, can't be getting up at four in the afternoon and talk about grinding. But that's another that's another conversation altogether. That's a whole another podcast, man. That's a whole another podcast. Yeah, trust me. I some so there's people out there who need to hear that podcast. <laughs> I got friends who are listening to this and gonna be giving me a call talking about why you put my business out there. I'm like, ain't nobody gonna know unless you you say something. So just don't mention it. You won't have no problems. Basically, man. Basically, but we got a whole bunch of problems to talk about because we got a couple of sad. Well, we got the sad news to recap over the Liddell Ortiz knockout, but we also got some pretty major news across MMA from this week. So we're gonna go ahead and kind of hop right into it, man. Let's actually. Let's start there with looking back at Chuck Liddell and um, Tito Ortiz, where we saw Liddell get stopped in the first round of that bout getting knocked out by Tito Ortiz, technical knockout getting finished by strikes. And everybody is basically up in arms about this bout, about it should have never been put on, um, questioning the, val- the validity of the California State Athletic Commission. Who's responsible for this? Uh, there's a couple of different things I want to talk about about this as a whole. But Shawana, give me your, your first thoughts about this fight and about the outcome. I I wasn't quite sure why they were making the fight because Tito's been so active in the past what two or three years. He's fought what four or five times, maybe, and he's been fighting actual legitimate young guys, competitive guys. So I I didn't see how this matchup was going to end for Chuck. I didn't even see why Chuck took it. He's got he's up two zero on Tito. Why even give Tito the chance to win? And there was no doubt in my mind that Chuck didn't have anything for him. I, I didn't really want to watch the fight. I just kind of heard about it from people, then watched it after the fact. But it was just, it was like a sham. It was like a money grab. It was basically a money grab for Tito, for Chuck, and for Golden Boy, trying to see if they could stick their toe into MMA and maybe make a quick buck and see if they could get a promotion started. And I, I just, I wasn't for it, man. I was, I was not for it at all. So I personally, I mean. Looking at what the payouts were, um, with Chuck making Chuck made the most. He made a hard 250k. I think Tito made 200, and they're both entitled to pay-per-view points. Um, with the rumors sitting around that the buys were at about um, the buys were about what 500, uh, 200k. So this is clearly a money grab. Was, was that the actual numbers? Like, did they actually hit 200K? No one has said. Um, I'm seeing, I saw today that the gate was about 730K. I think they're getting a cut of that as well. No one has said what the official pay-per-view buys were. But um, overall, you know, they made a, he made a pretty good payday on this. Um, but the question is, was that enough of a reason to invalidate the safety of this fighter at 48 years of age clearly looking like 
an individual should not be in there fighting. Does that trump? Does that pay a trump the his health and safety and more so the integrity of the uh, sport? Well, the, the thing that's weird to me is everybody's getting on about how Chuck, you know, he's past his prime. He shouldn't have been doing this. He shouldn't be in this position. It's it's about more than the money and talk about integrity. But the same people, when Bigfoot Silva is getting knocked out for the 11th time in the row, keep saying, well, it's his life. Let him do what he wants. How are, You're not paying his bills. You're not taking care of his family. You don't have a right to intervene. And I understand Chuck's a lot older, but the fact of the matter is there's no difference. There's lots of guys who are young fighters getting beat into brain damage, getting knocked out, getting seriously injured, losing five, six, seven fights in a row. And we line up to let them in. Be, like somebody said earlier, BJ Penn's still fighting in the UFC. So... Everybody who's saying this is kind of hypocritical because, you know, one instance you say it's, a, it's not right, but then people still watch it. The same people who are dissing the show were talking about it on Twitter and highlighting it and complaining about it. Well, if you didn't support it, then how did you see it? How do you know what happened if you, if you didn't support it? Now, now, you brought up a good point because Dana White had a lot to say about Chuck and Tito taking that fight and uh, Chuck's, Chuck basically being looking the way he did at 48 years of age, but also today, I believe that EJ Penn, who is 39, and who has also been getting drummed a lot lately, signed a new four fight contract. I mean, and he's on a one, two, three, four, five fight losing streak that dates back to 2011. And look who they put him in with, though. A young Yair Rodriguez, Frankie Edgar coming off, you know, who was a former, who was a former lightweight champion who had, who had previously beaten BJ twice before. Even Dennis Seaver was a guy who, while closer in age to BJ Penn, had so much less mileage on his, uh, his, his wheels. So it's like they're putting him, him in with guys who can hurt him and guys who can physically outclass him and guys who are just better athletes at this point. So what's at least, at least, in Tito versus Chuck, it was guys who were of a similar, a somewhat similar age group. They came from a similar time. It wasn't like Chuck fighting John Jones or Chuck fighting um, Dominic Reyes. It was a guy who was within his realm of age and his t- the time he was one of the best fighters in the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I... Go ahead. Go ahead. So, that, that's, why, that's why I'm not... I'm like, at least it was somebody... It's like... You know, it's like when Ken Shamrock fought Kimbo. At least these guys at this point are in similar levels. It's not serving up a name, an old guy to a name young kid who's going to really harm them. I mean, Tito's not a knockout puncher. That just shows you how far Chuck's chin has gone. But this was the safest fight Chuck could have had for a comeback. I mean, who else could you have put him in with? I mean, nobody, period. So uh, that's, that's my issue. And the fact of the matter is this happens in boxing all the time. I don't know why people get upset when it's a fighter they have fond memories of. But once again, like I said, with the Bigfoot Silver thing and other fighters, we don't pay Chuck's bills. The UFC no longer pays Chuck's bills. As good of friends as him and Dana were, Dana doesn't pay his bills either. And it's not his responsibility to. But if Chuck needs the money, and I can't imagine him fighting for any other reason but the money, who are we to tell him not, what not to do? We're not taking care of him. You know, the same people will say... It's not worth the money. If Chuck was complaining and asked for money, what would we say? That's your problem. You made millions. You should have taken care of it. So which way do you want it? People only people only want it to go one way or the other when it's convenient to them. Um, what's interesting is that we're sitting here talking about this right now, and 
And I found Dana White's comments pretty interesting because, as you know, we already talked about BJ Penn. He also let um, CM Punk fight in the UFC twice with very little training or experience. So his comments shouldn't really carry much weight at this point in time. And we also saw that the CSAC suspended uh, um, Chuck Liddell for indefinitely. So it's almost as if they're acknowledging their mistake. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if, if I recall correctly, when they when they gauge fighters, they go off a baseline. So if Chuck's mind and his reflexes are working on the baseline of an average person, then he's going to pass the test. They don't base it off of top-end athletes or elite athletes or anything of that nature. It's based off of an average baseline. And he's good enough to be at an average baseline. It's just not good enough to be a professional fighter. But as I said before, he's fighting a guy who was – even though Tito's been a lot more active and has fought recently against highly ranked guys, at least Tito was from the same general time frame as Chuck. So even though it was a sham, it was a money grab, it was the safest money grab possible. Definitely. And as much as people, much people care, they pick and choose when to care. You either care all the time or you don't. You either care about what, doing what's right or you don't. Don't support. Don't watch BJ Penn fight or watch a card he's on and then tell me that Chuck is – Chuck is being robbed and he's got terrible friends and fans are awful. Which one is it? You, you can't have it both ways. You have to make a decision and nobody wants to make that decision. I agree. No one really wants to make that choice. I didn't want to focus on this too much because we have, we have some good news to talk about from this week. We have some uh, pretty interesting stories that were developing. The first I want to talk about, I want to stick with UFC. Well, actually the Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz fight wasn't UFC, but I'm going to stick with that vein right now because I want to talk about Sage Northcutt. You know, he is a free agent now and he's fielding offers. The commentary around this has been pretty intriguing because Dana White is positioning himself to say, hey, Sage Northcutt, um, basically trying to put it in a situation where he's not, I don't want to say good enough, but he needs more seasoning before he can come back to the UFC. Even though they're, they found a way to bring in Mackenzie Dern and Greg Hardy, who both have less MMA experience than Sage did. But that's neither here nor there. Again, and they brought in CM Punk. But they're letting Sage Northcutt go. Um, what do you think is next for him? I think he's pretty, I, I think he's going to put himself in a position to make some very good money. But what do you think is next for him? I, I think that UFC's actually put him in a position because they brought him in early and they were paying him so well. So he, he got to learn on the job in the biggest promotion in the world, which also raised his Q rating. And the thing about it now is when they brought Sage in, he wasn't a UFC worthy type fighter. He was not. But now moving forward, he's actually become a legitimate fighter. Like if you see him now, you say there's a guy who belongs in the UFC. There's a guy who could actually make some headway in the UFC. The only difference is now that, but the, the UFC is getting rid of him because they don't want to get into a bidding war because Sage is young. He's on a win streak. He's looking better than he ever has before. And he has potential to be a star, if not a superstar, at least a legitimate bankable star. So they're not, they don't want to get in a bidding war because I don't know that the UFC has the money or has the faith in him to kick in that kind of money, but they're just letting him off because they don't want to get, they don't want to get into a back and forth financial. That's, the, that's the main reason. It's not because of skill. It's not because of his experience. At this point, he's at the level now where he's UFC worthy. It's just they, they don't want to have to get in a position where they might look bad because they don't want to match whatever he's going to be offered from another, from another organization, Bellator, maybe 1FC, or maybe Rizzo. But at this point, Sage is the closest to being a legitimate 
or high level UFC fighter than he's been in the entirety of his career. And I think he has a lot of options moving forward. First, yeah, I think he's in a pretty good place too as well. Um, and I think that he's really going to benefit from this opportunity. I think he is a, is in a position to be. I don't want to say. I I, w- I would not be surprised if I see him sign a deal with someone like One FC or One Championship, and it's like a short deal, like two, three fights, much like the way you see guys in the NBA signing one, two, three year three year deals to give themselves some flexibility, because. While he may not be great skill-wise, he has plenty of time to grow in that area, and he's shown that he has the ability to draw ratings as well. Because I mean, I remember the last piece I wrote about him was that his fights for one of the UFC on Fox events uh, pushed the card over the one million viewership uh, ratings, which is very important because the UFC is struggling to get back to that point. So I think that he has the opportunity here to play himself in a very good position. I also think it's interesting because it's funny because like they brought Paige and Sage in at the same time, but if you look at it right now, Paige is still considered somewhat of a an act or a novelty act, but Paige, but Sage is actually turned into a legitimate fighter. Like he's based some good quality opposition to welterweight, and he's looked good against them as it's gotten tougher and tougher. Like I said, the UFC is probably going to see. What happens with him? If he becomes a big enough star, he fights out his next contract, then they'll try to bring him back in. But right now, they're, they're going to say that they, they don't think he's worth it. But like I said, I don't think they just want to they don't want to get into a bidding war. Because, as I said, Sage, right now, his, his skill set actually is living up to, to the hype behind him. He's, he's actually turning to the fighter that we were told that he was going to be. And that's got to be a pretty exciting thing. Sage, his, whoever his management is, played this perfectly. They got him paid higher than UFC veterans learning on the job, facing at least very good competition or better than you face on regional level. And now he's leaving the UFC on a three-fight win streak, beating the toughest competition he's faced in his career. Now he's legitimate. Now he's got a name. Now he's on a win streak. And now he's free, a free agent with a, with a name, with a look, who's big on social media, and with legitimate fighting skills. Like, they played this perfectly. His, his management, I don't know if they planned it this way, but... They did an excellent job. There's there's lots of veteran fighters who wish they were in Sage Northcutt's position right now. Yeah, definitely. I, I find it funny that people are calling Sage overpaid um, and overrated when, in, in fact, he's not overpaid. He's just paid in a way that all the other fighters should have been getting paid, in my opinion. Um, he positioned himself in a, in a way to make that money. The UFC gave him the opportunity, and he did that. I'm not mad at him for it. I want to see him go on and keep doing his thing in prize fighting, getting the biggest prizes possible when he fights. That's the definition of the job. Um, but I'm not mad at him all, and I'm not, and I hope great things come to him in the future. I have a question. The question I have, there's one last question I have with Sage, because I don't, I don't, I'm not a UFC fighter. I've taught, I've worked with some, but I've never worked on their financial aspects of what they do. But I keep wondering, I can't imagine Sage's family or his team would let him sign a garbage contract. They probably would have rather him keep fighting on regional levels. They probably negotiated for a better contract. And while he didn't have the skill set or the experience to justify the contract, my question is this. All you other fighters, why isn't your, manage- why isn't your management saying we- we're going to negotiate? Because you're complaining about the money he got. But they didn't just – I guarantee you the UFC didn't just offer him that money right off the bat. There had to be. There were probably some negotiations. 
Why is your team not negotiating on your behalf? And if you don't like the money they're offering you, why are you taking it? Don't take the money and complain. <laughs> That's what I understand. Like you had a ma- you have management, you have a manager, you have a team. They spoke with Dana or whoever sets up these deals. They got you the best deal they felt they could get you. Why are you mad because somebody else's team got a better deal? It's, it's not Sage's fault. That's your team's fault. Or it's your fault for saying you value, you want to be fighting in the UFC, putting so much value on those three letters. Put more value in what's going into your pocket. But they made that choice. I want to fight in the UFC. Okay, well, if you want to fight for 15 and 15, that's your business. Sage said, I ain't fighting for less than 60 and 60. So that, 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 that's a problem with your personal management, your team, the people around you not with the fighter. Definitely. And I think a lot of guys allow their leadership to fail them in that situation, fail them big. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd like, I like to be in the UFC too, but in my case, I, I have kids, so I'd like to get paid better. If it means I got to be in Bellator or, or fight overseas, that that's going to take care of my family. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not just going to be there so I can fight the best because fighting the best doesn't feed my kids doesn't pay the light bill. They don't care that I fought the best. They want to know when this credit card bill is being paid. True, true that. Um, and talking about getting paid, I want to talk about this Bellator and Ryzen partnership that we uh, heard of late last night. I almost didn't believe it when I first saw the tweets at like 12.30 this morning where Darian Caldwell is going over to Ryzen to fight Kyoji Horaguchi at Ryzen 14 for the inaugural Ryzen bantamweight title. This fight, I got so hyped for this because this is what I want to see more of in mixed martial arts. And we're going to talk about that aspect in a second. Caldwell versus Horaguchi. I'm looking at Caldwell to be the favorite and to win this fight here. But does this fight intrigue you? Are you willing to do what's necessary to stay up on? I mean, we're going to be up New Year's Eve anyway, to be honest. I'll, I'll be in Mexico partying. But are you going to stay out of your way or go out of your way to watch this fight? Yeah, it's it's one of the very best fights you can make at the weight class. And to be quite honest, I don't. I mean, this it doesn't shock me because Bellator has had a relationship with Risen. Simply, you look at the fact they've had some Bellator fighters in there. They've had King Mo fight on multiple occasions in their heavyweight Grand Prix, and some of the guys who fought in the Grand Prix, the first two two or three Grand Prix, now fight in the in fight for Bellator the Bellator organization. So it's a natural kind of connection and i don't see why more organizations don't make it a point to work with them because these guys they need fighters they need guys with name brands they, they need to get the attention of the north american media so i don't understand why it's not a more common thing but um, yeah i'm definitely going to watch this fight i, I personally think horiguchi is the one who's, who's the favorite in it i know caldwell's an excellent grappler i know he's a very good wrestler but horiguchi's all-around ground game and his awareness has really improved since he's been overrisen. And it's a little bit different fighting in a ring than it is fighting in a cage. Getting those takedowns is a little bit harder to a certain degree. And Horiguchi's striking and his ability to manage distance is, is beyond elite. I mean, he, he went, what, three or four rounds with a world-class kickboxer. So while Caldwell is very good, he's very dynamic, Horiguchi, is a, in my opinion, is a comparable athlete, and he's, a, he's essentially got knockout power. You make one mistake, and it could be over that quickly. And... As good as Caldwell is, I don't think he's a Demetrius Johnson. And I and he gave Demetrius Johnson some fits. So I'm actually favoring Horiguchi. But I'm not going to lie and say Caldwell couldn't win this fight and couldn't win it decisively. Yeah, definitely on... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at 
Caldwell as well to win this fight, as I said. But Horaguchi is one of my favorite fighters, yo, because he just gives zero fucks. He fights everybody. He stays active. And he knows his worth. He could have stayed in the UFC after taking that loss to um, DJ. And he could still be in, in the uh, title picture. But he was like, nope, I know my worth. I'm going somewhere else. And now he's out there doing the damn thing. Still considered one of the best in the weight class, if not one of the best in the sport. Yeah, it's and once again, I hate to hit, I I hate to harp on the fighters because I'm not one, so it's hard for me to say this. But everybody keeps on complaining about well, Horiguchi gets as much. I'm just as good as him. Sage gets as much, but y'all didn't have to take the money they gave you. You didn't have to resign with the UFC or whoever you're with. That's a conscious choice. You be, they bet on themselves. You bet on the organization. There's a price for betting on the organization, just like there's a price for betting on yourself. And I don't understand why these guys get so bent out of shape or so frustrated. And it's a conscious choice they are making. You could walk away from them too. You chose not to. So take what comes with it and live your life. Definitely, man. And I think that I like to see these guys doing that thing, uh, putting themselves first uh, with, a, with a good old slice of treat yourself, which I think is very important there. Yeah. I mean, it, this, I mean this, this could really be the opening of a lot of things. If Risen can ever get a real general presence where it's covered over North America and it's really given a push, this could really open up a lot of doors for other fighters. Once again, not using the UFC as a, is the only option for one thing. And two, more people might go to Bellator because they're like, Hey, Bellator's got a relationship with these people. I could fight for a Bellator title. I could fight for a risen title. I could fight in America. I could fight in Europe. I could fight in Japan. It just, it opens up a lot of things. If this is becomes more the norm. So this is a very important fight for many reasons. Now, let's talk about that there, too, because are we looking at a situation where we do see more partnerships and cross-promotion uh, in mixed martial arts? I think we do see that. Um, Scott Cooper had been talking about that with Strike Force. He's been talking about that before, um, and there's opportunity there. And what I find interesting is that I feel like some of these organizations will begin partnering together and working together. But it'll be everybody but the UFC working together. Yeah, well, the UFC, they consider their brand to be above that sort of thing. I, I, I've said this before on Twitter. I've said this on the show. I've said this everywhere. I don't understand why all the other organizations are not trying to branch out and reach out to each other to create the best fights possible. Because individually, they don't have the depth or the name value in the fighters. But if you are willing to put a contender from Bellator in or a contender from one in or a contender from whoever in, you can create interesting fights that'll kind of get the hardcore fans and get the mainstream media. But to do that, you have to be willing to extend risk your fighter losing to another organization's highly ranked fighter or their champion. And But it's, it's worth the risk because it's going to draw more attention and it's going to set up the table further down the line for more matchups like that. And if you're not, and if you're not the UFC, you can't afford. To me, you can't afford to be stingy. You can't afford to get so hung up on what if my guy loses this guy. You need to bring eyes to your to your to your product, and you need to bring a high quality product for those eyes to see. I mean, if Bellator did this more often, imagine the kind of fights we could have in the Bellator cage or in the Risen cage if they would do this. But they don't make it a habit of doing it, which is the problem. Which I also, I also agree with. Um, I, I think that there's some opportunity there that I would like to see, especially with you know the UFC offering to trade uh, Demetrius Johnson and this deal going on. Uh, King Mo already going over the uh, over the rise in the fight. There's a lot of opportunity there that I'm looking forward to, hopefully seeing 
in uh, the future. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's for the best. A lot of guys are short-sighted, so they're not going to think about it. But if you're looking into the future of the sport, the more options there are for the fighters, that's how the pay gets up. That's how guys get rights, and that's how guys get pensions or whatever there is when there's more options. When there's just one main option, it, it limits what you can do, and, and it increases how much you have to tolerate. You know, but like I said, you have to have faith in yourself and faith in the, in the long game. And it doesn't seem like a lot of fighters do. They'd rather take the short money and complain about it and take a chance on themselves and potentially get long. Money. And you don't you don't become great without risk. You got to take a risk to get great. And nobody wants to take any risk. So <clears throat> let's take now. That's all the news I wanted to cover today. So let's move on into a quick recap of UFC Fight Night 141. There's only three things I really wanted to look at from this fight. First being Francis Ngannou versus Curtis Blades, where we saw Ngannou defeat Blades for the second time, finishing him by knockout in 45 seconds, technical knockout. Uh, what do you think about this? Is Ngannou back, or was this more of a flash knockout? Um, I, I, think I, I didn't think Ngannou really had left. When he had the fight against Lewis, we, we previewed the fight. The biggest thing I said was they're both counterfighters. It might not be an exciting fight because Lewis is a tough, explosive guy who likes to work on the counter. And Ganu is a very athletic, explosive guy who likes to work on the counter. So you have two counterfighters. That can always be very boring, especially when either one of them is capable of ending the fight at any moment. Blades was – Ngannou was never a good matchup for, for, Bla- for um, Blades. And I don't know why his team accepted the fight. I, as soon as they made it, I'm like, he's going to lose this fight. There's no way he wins this fight. He doesn't have the skill set to win it. So he's on a winning streak. He's a potential new heavyweight contender, and they have they have blown the fight now. Any chance they've taken all his momentum away and put Ngannou back in the name of contenders by forcing this fight when they didn't have to. This is essentially Junior DeSantos versus Ben Rothwell all over again. Junior DeSantos versus Ben Rothwell all over again. Do you think that Ngannou has a swagger back, for lack of a better term? I, I mean, this really helps him because, I mean, it's a guy who's on a winning streak. It's a guy who's been beating legitimate guys, and it's a guy he dispatched, dispatched easily. I mean, Blades wasn't able to do anything with him at all. He couldn't even attempt a takedown. He couldn't really get any strikes off, and he was finished with the first shot he, he got hit with. And Blades was considered possibly the next title contender. So, yeah, it's going to give him confidence. Yeah, it's going to give him some swag back because he beat a guy who had been looking like he's unbeatable. But the fact of the matter is there's no way that Ngannou has really addressed the issues he's had previously in his career in this short of time. And I don't believe there's a way. It's going to take a couple fights, if not a couple months, if not a couple years, for him to really address it. But the fact of the matter is with his physical tools and, the, and his particular striking style, it's going to be hard for most of the, the majority of the heavyweights to exploit it. Steve Miocic can. Derek Lewis can, maybe. But who else really has the skill set and the physical tools to exploit him the way that Stipe did or the way that Derek Lewis kind of tamed him? How many people can, can fight that fight? Not many. So he doesn't have to be that much better to, to be a top three or top two heavyweight. To be the champion, he might, have, he might have to make some changes. But to be in the mix consistently, I mean, even after the loss to Lewis, he was still top three heavyweight because I couldn't name. Well, so, yeah, after Cormier... Stipe and Lewis, I can't name four, five, six, seven, eight other heavyweights who I would guarantee could beat him in a fight. So he, nothing's really changed for him, but he's got to win and he's got an explosive one. So the hype machine starts back up. But I, I had no doubts he was going to win this fight. I was, 
that was I I should have bet a bunch of money on it because I had no doubt he was going to win this one. He was, was definitely the underdog. He was definitely the underdog, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, and I don't understand. It's like, do you, you can you can be winning fights. Winning fights does not mean you're improving. Winning fights does not mean you're addressing holes. Winning fights doesn't mean that you're above a style matchup. Rose was a bad matchup for Joanna. Joanna won how many fights in a row, and then got wiped out in one round against Rose. It, it it's not a matter of just being on a win streak or beat who you beat. There's certain things about style matchups that if you watch film and you pay attention to habits, you know that fight's not going to work the way it's supposed to. Curtis Blades is used to guys being scared of his wrestling and being scared of his athleticism so he can back them up, he can control them, he can land shots on them. Ngannou's a better athlete. Ngannou knows how good a wrestler Curtis Blades is, and Ngannou knows that he's more explosive and that he can defend the the initial shot from Blades. So Blades has to work his way into position for a takedown, i.e. striking. Blades' striking isn't good enough to get in instead of the takedowns to get in. He basically threw a shot, Ngannou countered, and that was it. And that was always going to be the case. The more chances he took, the more likely he was to get knocked out. The only way he could even make it competitive is just to try to wrestle Ngannou. But Ngannou is too strong and too good at blocking, stuffing the initial shot for Blades to really have any success without exhausting himself. So he had to set up takedowns with strikes. And as soon as he opened with strikes, Ngannou dusted him. It's really simple. It wasn't complex at all. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. I mean... Did you think that this was a bad stoppage? Could there have been, could it have gone on longer? It could have been a bad, it, you know, to agree, I could see it being a bad stoppage just because he was coming back. But the fact of the matter is the way he got hit and the way he fell, that, you know, the ref's going to be looking, looking to end that fight. I mean, because when he fell, he fell like he was done for. So even though he was coming back, the fact of the matter is two things happened. The way he fell and Ngannou's reputation as a striker is what essentially determined would stop the fight because Ngannou's known as such a savage puncher. When you, when you fall like that, no referee is going to let a guy who's got a, what, 90% KO ratio just tee off on you like that. They're just not going to. The rep, your reputation proceeds itself. Same reason Mark Hunt hit somebody, he walks away, and they stop the fight. As anybody else, they'd keep the fight going because Mark Hunt hit him and his reputation's there. They're going to stop it. Yeah, man, I think I, I, um, I'm not saying it's right, but you go by the reputation, you know. I think it could have gone on a little bit longer, but um, yeah, it was it was definitely. I don't think it would have ended much differently if the ref would have allowed it to go on a little bit longer. No, I don't think it would end differently, but like I said, they could have let it go longer. But you're in with one of the biggest punches in the heavyweights. The guy fell down like he was shot, and you got to make. Uh, you got to make a decision. What? Three, two, three seconds? It's not much time. The guy looks hurt. I'm not going to take any chances. I'm just going to jump right in there. I'm, I, so I, I can't argue with it. I mean, as, as bad as this is going to sound, because you should let it go on, if you really didn't want to ha- have a quick stoppage, don't open yourself up to get countered where you get dropped like that. That's just, he never gets dropped like that. The fight doesn't get stopped. But when he got dropped initially, it looked, to me, it looked pretty bad. I don't know how you looked at it, but it looked to me like that shot could have put him out right away and then he recovered. But you just can't put yourself in certain positions against certain kind of fighters because the referee is going to go. Referees are influenced by human beings. They're influenced by reputation just like the rest of us. They shouldn't be, but they are. And I think the reputation of who was hitting him and the way he fell is essentially the term of the fight. Okay, I got it. Yeah, I got it. 
Um, what about Alistair Overeem getting a first round finish of his own against Sergey Pavlovich? He um, defeated the undefeated fighter Pavlovich and basically blew through him. Is Overeem is Overeem a gatekeeper or is he a contender who just can't get the title around his waist? I think he's a I think he's a contender. He's too good to be a a a, a, a gatekeeper. Even though he's older, it's it's the same issue they have a light heavyweight. When you bring in you bring in the younger guys, they don't have a chance to develop. They don't have a chance to get their seasoning because the division's so thin. So you you come in your first fight, you're fighting a guy who's a top five, top seven, or maybe you get a fight or two, and then you got to fight a top three guy in the division. And as much as as much as Overeem's kind of fragile, he's not the athlete he used to be. He's not as strong as he used to be. The fact of the matter is, he's still one of the best skilled heavyweight fighters in history. He has legitimate wrestling. And legitimate grappling skills. He has legitimate world-class striking skills. He has legitimate world-class mixed martial arts skills. He's got one of the best skill sets possible. He's still one of the biggest hitters, and he's still one of the best, most balanced strikers in mixed martial arts, especially at heavyweight. I mean, if Overeem hadn't had a couple of losses, nobody nobody would take this fight seriously. But the whole fight, the fight was based off of Overeem hadn't looked dominant recently. So you think Overeem's vulnerable? Can this guy knock him off? But if you take out those two losses and you look at the skills, you look at the experience, nobody would think this fight's competitive. It's just because Overeem got starched in two fights. So people start thinking, oh, well, maybe this guy can can follow suit. But Overeem hasn't slipped that much. I think a lot of people are counting on him being chinny. But he is, think, and he is. I think that he's changed, but he learns from it, though. And he changes his style enough that he can hopefully avoid taking those big blows that, that get him out of the cage. I think that's that's what I like most about Overeem is that he continues to learn and kind of mold his style in a way that helps him add some longevity to his career. Well, yeah, well, part of it and part of it is his ability to learn, but also like like it's been stated before, Overeem's been in the game for a long time. He's had to learn a lot of stuff. He's had, he's had to develop and mature his game over the time. He can switch directions and switch strategies because he has a deep and broad enough skill set to do so. There's a difference between me somebody telling you what you need to do and you having the maturity and the skill set to do it. Overeem has that for a reason because he's been doing this so long. Yeah, these guys are more durable. Yeah, these guys might be a little bit more athletic, but that's all they have. They don't have a balance of skills and they don't have any sort of cage IQ or experience. They, they can't create the situations to take advantage of them. The guys who have have been either beyond elite athletes, you know, or really high-end elite athletes, or the guys who beat him have been veterans. Ben Rothwell um, was a was a veteran. Ngannou was just a freak athlete. Even Stipe's, you know, he's not the veteran of Overeem's caliber, but he's still a veteran fighter. So it's not like he's just losing to guys who don't have any skill set and don't have any awareness. You have to be a certain caliber fighter to put him in the position necessary to beat him. And so it's funny, it's interesting, I'm going to use that as a segue because we've just talked about one individual who is a, not a pioneer, but someone who's been around for a long time, and Alice Overeem. The only other thing I wanted to talk about from UFC Fight Night, uh, what was this, 141 or whatever the number was, was Jessica Aguilar getting starched by Wheelie Wheelie Zhang, I, I don't know if that's the right way to say her name, but getting starched and getting finished in the first round. And this fight actually opened up an opportunity for Zane because it was just announced today that she's facing Tisha Torres next. So what did you think about that, that, um, about that win there and, and how far can, uh, Zane go? The, the problem with, 
Aguilar. Aguilar is a good fighter, but Aguilar's. I felt bad for Aguilar when she finally got in the UFC because she's one of those fighters who had her best years in another organization. So she's built up this acclaim. She was one point the number one person in the division. But by the time she comes to the UFC, she's not the athlete she used to be. She was never a great striker. Not really. She had a jab, good right hand, could move all right. And she was a, a good wrestler, but she was never a high-level technical wrestler nor a high-level high enough, high enough athlete where she could force the fight into the ground if her technique didn't hold up. So she's slower, she's not as she's slower, she's not as explosive, she's not a power puncher, and she's not a high level technician. It's just since she's been in here, she's been on a decline physically and she doesn't have the skill set, nor does she have any of the physical tools to make up the difference for what she's lacking. So the, while this fight was this fight the what made this fight impressive was how completely it was dominated by the by the uh, Asian fighter. She just outclassed her. And even when you're facing a veteran, if you Fight one, even if you dominate them, usually they've got enough veteran savvy and the veteran tricks, how to buy time, how to work out of bad spots so that you can't finish them. You might, you have to go rounds against them. And she just basically eliminated her easy, fast and easy. And that's what made the win so impressive. The fact that she was able to outclass and outslick a veteran with Aguilar's experience and level of opposition. That That's what made the fight more, more, more impressive. But then, if you look at it on the paper and you look at who Aguilar has been the past couple of years, it's not quite as impressive. Uh, the fight against Torres, I think she should be a favorite in because Tisha Torres has been fighting um, in a less intelligent manner for the past two or three fights. She's seemingly gotten worse as far as her awareness and her game plans. And if she didn't make some changes as far as how her camp scouts people and how they prepare, her, I, I don't expect her to win this fight either. She, she really has been fighting worse. And, and Torres is another person who, who came in with a lot of hype and a big name and hasn't been able to do anything with it moving forward as far as establishing herself as a legitimate threat for a title. She's beat a lot of girls, but she hasn't beat any of the best girls she's faced. She's lost and she's lost decisively to them. So um, I think this is another chance for um, Wang to beat a name fighter and to take another step forward in that in the strawweight division. Do you think she can become a title contender? Uh, I think so. I mean, if she beats Torres... She'll be at worst, maybe a. I mean, they'll probably put her a fight or two away. She'll start. She'll be start. She'll start being considered a potential ch- title challenger in another fight or two if she beats Torres. I don't think beating Torres puts her in there, but I think she needs to fight when at least one other fight to be considered a legitimate contender. I can agree with that. Um, I think it would be pretty interesting. Is there anything else you want to talk about from this fight card? Anything that kind of stands out to you? Uh. Just not the only thing that bothers me is the UFC didn't think very well with this matchmaking with with Nganu and Blades. Blades was on a winning streak. He had some kind of heat. He had some kind of momentum. There's a possible title challenger. He'd been talking more on social media, and now that Nganu's beat him, Nganu's looked bad in two of his last three recent fights. You can't put him into a title fight, and now you're just going to start knocking off anybody else who could be a potential challenger if he goes on a win streak. But the guys he'd have to beat are guys who beat him decisively, Derek Lewis, Stipe Miocic. So what do you do with him now? You know, how, what do you do with him to help push the, the division forward? It just seems like really short-sighted matchmaking. Like they were hoping Blades would beat him, and Blades didn't. And that's, that's going to create a whole lot of problems for them moving forward, in my opinion. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that there. Um, let's move on to some previews for events for this week. Because there isn't a whole bunch I want to talk about from either card. In fact, I just want to look at the main event from 
these two events where we got Rafael Dos Anjos fighting Kamara Usman tomorrow at the Top 28 finale. And then Chidi and Jokowani fighting John Salter at Bellator 210. So let's start with that first. And Jokowani versus Salter. Go ahead and break this down, Fawn. Uh, the biggest, I like Njokowani because he's his length, his striking, his athleticism. But the gap in the grappling and the wrestling is so so severe. I just don't understand how he, I don't understand how he wins this fight unless Salter just fights really the dumbest fight possible. Because he, he should have, he should be able to, he doesn't have to do much on the feet. He just has to do enough to set the table to get his hands on Njokowani. And once he gets, he can chain takedowns so if he gets it on top of him. Njokowani shows some decent skills as far as being defensive and being able to work his way up, but he's never shown any ability to really do anything successfully or consistently defensively or offensively if forced on his back or even held up against the cage outside of, you know, working the elbows and the knees. So I'm going to favor Salter. I, I like, I like Chidi a lot. I think he could end the fight at any moment, but just based off what I've seen from him stylistically, especially if the fight takes on a grinding nature moving forward, I, I, I would say that Salter probably wins the decision or probably finishes him inside of three. Inside of three, okay. All right, that's not a, um, a bad breakdown there, sir. Uh, let's hop from here. Oh, Chris Honeycutt is also still fighting too, but let's hop from here over to the tough uh, the tough card where we have Rafael Dos Anjos and Kamar Usman. This is a big fight for Usman here because he needs this win to stay relevant in the uh, division. I mean, he should be in the title picture, but he just hasn't been able to get that big win to kind he's of just push him into that situation. He's just boring. He hasn't I done mean, anything. I didn't want to say it. You said it. That, that's all. I mean, he's on a win streak, and and the, if you notice, nobody is talking about him in big fights. Uh, ben, what's the Ben Askren's coming over? Nobody mentioned Usman. Uh, Ponzinibbio needed a guy. Nobody's mentioning Usman. Nobody's mentioning him at all. Like he hasn't, he hasn't cap. It's deadly and dangerous as he looks. He has not captured the fans' attention, and so nobody's talking about him, even though he's on a win streak and even though he's been fairly dominant. He's done it in a unexciting manner that people don't appreciate. And I know that winning matters. But how you win matters too, and he has not done it in a manner that has gotten people excited. So he's on the outside looking in. So he is on the outside looking in. Um, is it? Does he need to do something different, or does he? Is he? Is he close to becoming a John Fitch like um, character where no matter how many guys he beats, he he just will never be appreciated and get back into the title picture. Uh, I I think so. I mean, he's got a good, he's good enough athlete that it'll probably be worse than John Fitch because John Fitch, even though he's a better athlete than an average person, and compared to an average person, he's a world class athlete. The simple fact of the matter is John Fitch is it a world class athlete. Usman is so people see that he has the physical potential to knock people out. He has the potential to slam people around and have high amplitude throws and and destroy them on the ground with ground and pound. For some reason, he just doesn't. Either he lacks the skill to put his shots together. He, I mean, essentially, he just pot shots, guys. He doesn't put his shots together. Or he lacks the, the will to throw the volume. Or he lacks the will to really go for submissions and really work guys over. So it's like you see a guy with all this talent and all this ability who refuses to do what it takes or take the chances necessary to go out for a finish. He fights very smart. He shows a lot of intelligence. But he doesn't show that violence that that really gets people excited. It shows people that he's a, a step above the other contenders in the division. And that's always going to hold him back. 
regards to how many fights he puts together, it's always it's always going to be something that's held against him, in my opinion. Unless he just basically beats everybody else, but everybody's tr- everybody's trying to work work around him because fighting Usman is a lose lose thing. You lose to him, and you don't look good fighting him. So what's the point of doing it if you can avoid it? The only reason Dos Anjos is doing it is because he lost to Covington, and he needs a fight to push him back forward into the conversation of title contenders. So he has to fight. He doesn't have a choice. He wants to forward right now. Who do you think wins this fight and, and how? Historically, Usman should win this fight. Um, RDA is not good when with wrestlers. He's not good wrestlers who can bully him and who can kind of get physical with him and put some pressure on him. He's historically lost those fights. He's, he's decent enough defensively on the ground, but he's not great as far as the submissions go in finishing guys or getting guys off him. So if you go by his history, Usman should just bully him, push him back, take him down, control him, work him over, and win a decision. He, he's not an exciting enough pot fighter to go for a knockout. He usually doesn't take chances for knockouts. He doesn't usually take chances for going for submissions for, you know, he doesn't want to risk being extended. Um, the main thing Nisanyos could do is basically just force Usman to fight. He's basically got to hope that he can make Usman fight at a pace where Usman can't maintain it. And when Usman starts going for that, uh, playing that prevent defense, which he usually does, hope that he can force a scramble or catch him coming in to finish him. But once again, Desanius is a guy who kind of wears you down with volume and physicality. He's not really a submission guy, not really. And he's not really a knockout guy either. So as long as Uzma can fight a smart discipline fight, he should essentially be able to out-hustle him to a decision. I don't know. He, he has the skills and ability to finish, but he's never been that kind of guy. But who knows? Maybe he might try to put a stamp on the fight this time to kind of stand out. But otherwise, I, I would expect Uzma to, feed, to win a fairly contested decision. I, I can see RDA winning. But historically, this is the kind of fight that he routinely loses. He's lost it against worse athletes. He's lost it against worse wrestlers. So it's hard to think that he that Usman wouldn't be able to follow suit, follow the blueprint, and win this fight. Hmm. So, man, I definitely agree with you there. I think that the, the science definitely has had issues with guys who can bully him, as you basically said there. And I think, this, I think this is a very tough fight for him to take at this time in his career. Is he on a downslide? I don't think he's on the downside. I, I, like I said, he, he could have beat Covington. I still think he can beat Usman if he can get him into the right spots. It's just the question that he'd have to be able to survive those wrestling exchanges or win them enough time so that he could create the hold, to create the openings he needs to land the shots he needs to land to take control of the fight. And even against Covington, he had moments. The only problem is he's fighting at a bigger. He's finding the same issue that he that Donald Cerrone found. It's a little bit harder to do damage at the welterweight when you start fighting the better guys. It's a little bit harder to keep them off you. It's a little bit harder to get get out of these grappling exchanges. It's a little bit harder to take the heat that they're throwing back at you. I still think he's close to his prime as far as like this, his skill set and what he's able to do with it. But he's running up into the roadblocks because he's a physical, pace, punishing fighter. But now he's fighting these very big, very strong, very durable guys who can handle his pace, who can handle his physicality, who can handle his power. And so now, even a lot of his skills are based off being able to physically dominate guys. So what happens when he can't physically dominate anymore? The skills aren't quite as effective. They're not quite as much the deciding factor in a fight as they usually they usually would be. And lightweight, where he could kind of bully guys, he can't bully guys here. And I, and it's it, it's starting to show up against the more elite guys he's fighting. 
Yeah, I can definitely um, agree with you on that there. Take a look at both of these cards, man. Is there anything else that stands out to you? Um, Who's the guy? Is it Jake Roberts? Jake? Jake Matthews. I'm interested to see what Jake Matthews does just because he's been around the UFC for so long. He's still young and he's been, he's, he was considered one of, he's considered such a high level athlete and you like to see if he's ever going to turn the corner and really put all the skills together where he can maximize that athleticism instead of just using it as a crutch. Cause so much of his career has been based on him being a great athlete and physically punishing. So you want to see if he's ever going to get that veteran, that veteran mindset, that high IQ where he can maximize his skills instead of using them as a crutch. But you, you don't know because he's been fighting at 155 how good he's been or how good he's going to be. Now that he's up at welterweight, we can really see if he's made further developments. Because if he has, he has the potential to be a star. He has the potential to be a title challenger. He's that good physically. But what's always held him back is a lack of poise, a lack of maturity, and a lack of depth of skill, which has constantly got him in trouble when he's faced the better opponents, either guys who've got a, a wide balance of skills or guys who've got enough athleticism where he can't just completely have his way. So I'm, I'm interested to see how much he's developed and how much seasoning he's got and how much more poise and refinement he has and not just the skills he's using, but how he uses them in a fight. That's, good. That's some good analysis there, sir. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Chris Honeycutt over at Bellator 210 to see how he rebounds from that loss he suffered to uh, Hafia Lovato. And quickly, while I'm sitting here thinking about it, Lovato versus Mosasi, man, what do you think about that fight? Um, I It's interesting just because, for once, Musasi is in, in Bellator. Musasi's basically had this huge advantage physically and as far as the strength and the grappling. And now he's facing a guy who he shouldn't be able to bully and a guy he shouldn't be able to easily outclass on the ground. So I expect to see more of Musasi on the feet, flashing a little bit more of that striking and defensive wrestling. Um, I, you ha- I guess you just have to favor Musasi. He's got the experience. He's got a better balance of skills. And he seems to have really put it all together. Coming out of the UFC, he was already on like what a two or three fight win streak. Coming to Bellator and he's been running just as hot. So you have to favor, in my opinion, you have to favor Musasi. But I, for some reason, I, I feel like he's, he's declining a little bit physically. And I just think he's, I think at any moment he's ready to be taken. He just has to be put in the right position. I really think um, Lovato Jr. can get the job done. I just feel, I don't know why I haven't seen any, any logical proof of this, but I feel like Musashi's not as durable as he used to be. I feel like he's as far as his athleticism. And I feel that if you can put him in the right spot, you can get a minute. You can open up a minute. You're breaking up, you're breaking up, you're breaking up. I just feel if you can put him in the right spots, I think you can put him in a position where you can get a finish on him. I, I feel like physically he's declining. It hasn't become really obvious, but I think he's right there on that edge. And I think in the next year or two, you're going to see a big drop off from him. Hmm. Okay. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about today was my boy, my guys, a guy I don't know why I always like this dude, but Yoshihiro Akiyama is coming back to MMA, going over to one championship. It's sexy time over in one championship, man. What are your thoughts about this? He, Akiyama has a fought since 2018. He was 2-5 and five in the UFC. I mean, this guy wasn't much of anything, but this dude always put on some great fights. What, do you thought, what are your thoughts about that? I think it's a good call for him and one. He's got a big fan base. He always puts on exciting fights. 
And going into one FC, he's not going to be facing a lot of guys who are, you know, really world class guys. They don't have a lot of elite talent, or they have guys who got talent, but they're so raw right now that a veteran can come in there and still dominate, as you see with Brandon Vera and what Eddie Valvarez is hoping he's going to do when he goes in there. So I think it's a really great. I think it's a win win for both guys, or both for or for one is an organization and for Akiyama is an individual fighter. He'll get to put some wins together. He'll make some good money. He'll get a guy who had a huge fan base in for a little bit of traffic. You're breaking up, sir. I, it, it's just a good, it's a win-win. He's a star, and they're, they, need a, they need stars. They need guys with good fan bases, and they don't have enough guys who are refined talent. So he, he can still go over there. Even though he's rusty, he should be able to put some wins together. I don't know if he beats the best guys they have in their organization, but he should be able to beat a whole lot of them, in my opinion. Really? Yeah, I, I, from what I've seen of one, they don't have a lot of they have a lot of young talent, but they don't have a lot of guys who are really world class guys. There's not a lot of guys from one you put in the UFC, you say they're going to go on a five fight win streak. You, there's a lot of a lot of guys I'd put in Bellator and say they're going to go on a five fight win streak. I tend to think that their organization is fairly shallow in talent. I know he's not what he used to be, but I think they're going to put him in favorable fight matchups. And I don't think he needs the money, so I think it's really a matter of he just wants to compete again. And if he really wants to compete. I think he. I think he can put some wins together. I'm not saying he beats the best in the organization, but I think he can put two or three wins together. Because when you bring in a a, um, a draw, you don't bring him in to lose. I'm not saying they're going to give him soft touches, but they're going to give him guys who he has a good chance of competing against and winning. They're not bringing him over there. They want to maximize the earning, and you don't maximize it by get getting him blown out by some no name in, in his first fight. I mean, hell, they got Hansel Gracie going over there still winning fights. So I guess you pretty much that pretty much explains it all, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, Henzo, Henzo making better money than some guys who are top five ranked UFC fighters. <laughs> All right, that's very true there, sir. So with that in mind, man, why don't you let everybody know what you're working on, dude? Uh, I have not been working on a lot recently. It's been just beyond hectic. But you can always find me on Twitter. I'm having these two and 3,000 tweet conversations with people because I haven't been able to write a lot just because time of the year, kids, other responsibilities. So I just make it a point to really have a lot of in-depth conversations with people about whatever fighter they want to talk about, whatever situation they want to talk about, whatever matchup they want to talk about. I'm here for it. True, true. So I'm working on, you know, I'm always doing all of my multi-sport coverage across football, uh, wrestling, and everything else. So you can always find my content. Be sure to follow me at R. Garcia Sports uh, to catch me on Twitter to let, to basically see everything I'm rambling about. Schwan, let everybody know where they can find our, our content. Find us on iTunes. You find us on SoundCloud. You can find us at YouTube. And you can find us on Player FM. That's the four biggest places you can find us at. Once again, thank you for your support. We're going to keep on doing our best for you to have entertaining and informative guests and shows for you. Thanks, everybody, and uh, have a great night, Schwann. We'll be back at it next week. All right, sir. See you later. See you later, sir.